Well, church, I hope you are ready to engage this morning. Are you ready? Because this morning I've got to do a little bit more teaching than preaching. Because uh, I'm going to need you to focus a little bit this morning, and I need you to put on your thinking caps because I need to lay down some background. If this next series is going to make any sense at all, the next series we're in is called The Return I Never Knew. If that's going to make sense, I've got to lay the background. And so it's going to take a minute for us to get to our text this morning that's found in Matthew chapter 24 because I really want to set this up for us. And let's start like this. Have you ever owned a really nice pair of binoculars? And so I thought I had a nice pair of binoculars. I was given a pair when I was about 25 as a gift, and uh, it was a great pair. It had some weight to it. It wasn't plasticky. It, it had a center knob on it that seemed to focus really well, and, and I, I really liked it. But it wasn't until I moved to Minnesota and found myself in friendship with several hunters that I realized my cute little binoculars <laughs> were not real binoculars. Because when I looked at their binoculars, their binoculars had substantial differences than mine. Mine was very deficient. They had special coating on the lens of the binoculars. You could fine-tune each eye independently. You could zoom in so far, it felt like you could see the next state. They had image stabilization. They had low-light level controls and more. And so what happened is, as they showed me their binoculars, the image that was way off in the distance came more and more into focus. And the reason I share that story with you is when we look at our Bibles, there are several factors that if we can get them in focus, you can actually see what's coming pretty clearly. And these factors are critical in helping us understand things, especially in terms of what is to come, especially in terms of the end times. Now, the theological term for what we're about to look at is called Hermeneutics. It's a $2 word. It sounds impressive. All it means is it's the manner in which you interpret your Bible. So the question I would have is what is your hermeneutic? What do you use to interpret your Bible? And so I want to show you four critical elements that we need to get dialed in if we want to have a proper focus of what is to come. So first, when we interpret our Bible... We interpret our Bible literally. So here's what I mean by that. In order to fully understand what is to come, we understand that we, when we read a passage, we try to read it in its normative meaning. Meaning the Bible, by and large, says what it means and means what it says. So by and large, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Now, of course, there are a couple genres in Scripture like poetry or prophecy, or others that speak more metaphorically, but by and large, you can take your Bible at face value. And when you do so, it brings the end into focus. The second thing is when we interpret our Bibles, we read it grammatically, meaning normal grammatical rules help us. We look at word definitions. We spend some time going, is that a noun, or is that a verb? And we use normal 
everyday grammatical language, it gives us road signs, and we begin to realize that the Bible uses things like compare and contrast. We talked about that several weeks ago. Or it uses things like alliteration, or repetition, or cause and effect. And as you read it grammatically, the future comes into focus. Third, when we interpret our Bible, we read it historically. Meaning the Bible is written in a very significant and a very specific context. And in order to understand fully what the Bible is trying to suggest, we have to read into it contextually and ask the question, what's happening behind the scenes in history? We have to ask questions like, what were the politics? What's the culture? When was it written? Where was it written? To whom is it written? And as you ask all of those questions, what you begin to find is the real meaning of the text comes into focus and you begin to see the future more clearly. And the fourth way, or the final way we read our Bible is we read it Christocentrically. It's the idea from Genesis to Revelation, the hero of the text is not you, it's Christ. The hero of the text is Christ. That's why we use the phrase, helping you see Jesus on every page. That's the point. See, Jesus said to the religious Pharisees in John chapter 5, you study the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, by the way. You study your Old Testament diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me that show me on every page, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Much like my friend's binoculars up north, when you get it all focused in literally and grammatically and historically and Christocentrically, the future begins to come into focus. Now what I'm going to share with you this week and over the next several weeks is a view of what is to come from the words of Jesus. But here's the difficulty. When you talk about debated issues in the Bible, and this is a debated issue, there are all kinds of people that pick fights over whether this interpretation is right or that interpretation is right. It is not my intent to pick a fight over this issue at all. This is not an issue that we divide over. But I would say, when you look at your Bible literally and historically and grammatically and Christocentrically, the future does grow in clarity. And here's kind of what I mean. When you read through your Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus. Did you know that? Your Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies, which are all fulfilled literally. Like they literally are fulfilled. And if that is indeed the case, then wouldn't it be safe to assume that any prophecies about his second coming would also be fulfilled literally? The answer is yes. And so how can we help you get a basic picture of what is to come? Well, what I, what I announced before the service started is you needed to pick up something that looks like this out in the lobby on your way in. Because on the back of that is a chart I put together that looks like this. And you're going to want to pull that out because we're going to walk through this in our sermon today. And so I put together a chart. And the, the, the question is, is this chart completely accurate and correct and complete in all things? No, that's not the point of it. 
It's a simplistic view of the flow of human history and God's redemptive purposes. So it's designed to help us bring some things into focus. And it all starts over here on the left-hand side. It starts with the fact that Jesus is pre-existent. You know, he is, he is pre-existent. He, he, he starts way, way, way out there. Some of us grew up thinking that Jesus makes his very first appearance in a manger in Bethlehem. No, no, <laughs> that, that's not the case at all. Jesus is pre-existent. And then we have creation. We have Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are at creation. And so when the Bible says things like, let us make man in our image, that us speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or it talks about who is present there. When it uses the word we, it's all three of them. And then you'll see after that, you'll see in Genesis chapter 3, the fall comes into play. And mankind, though bearing the image of God, chose to rebel against God, and the image of God is defaced. It's not erased, it's just defaced. And in Genesis chapter 12, you have one of the most significant covenants in your entire Bible. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. God promises Abraham and all of his descendants that they will become the people of God and they're going to be known as the nation of Israel. And God promises them three very, very specific things. He promises them land, seed, meaning a, a large generation or Lord, a large population, and blessing. And all three of those are echoed all throughout your Old Testament. In fact, the land promise called the Palestinian Covenant is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The seed covenant is the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. That, you know, you'll never fail to have someone sitting on the throne of David. There will always be an heir there. And you're going to see the blessing promise is the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, what's important to realize is if you read your scriptures literally, you have to ask the question, have all three of those things ever been experienced on planet Earth in totality since the earth began? Land, seed, and blessing. And the answer is no. They might have land, but maybe they're being wiped out and there's not you know, a seed or there's not blessing. There's all sorts of other things that have happened, but have all three happened in totality? No, it is still to come. And as we move through the timeline on the back of your booklet, we come to the book of Daniel. Now Daniel is inspired by the Holy Spirit and says that from the time of the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and that decree, by the way, is found in Nehemiah chapter 2, so we know it's written, when it was written, because it's written down historically. We have a date for that. It says from then all the way until the Messiah as king just sort of rolls into Jerusalem, we call that the triumphal entry. We know the date of that because it was recorded in history. It was written down we know that Daniel calls this a measurable time frame. We know how long this gap is. It's, Daniel says it's 69 weeks of years. So now I don't want to get lost in the math, but simple math says 69 times 7 is 483 years. That's 173,880 days. So if we know the date of Nehemiah chapter 2... And we know the date of when he went into 
Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, you want to take a guess, just a random guess, at how many days passed there? 173,880. You can't make this stuff up, right? This, it's crazy. That's why it's called supernatural. That's the idea, and that's on your timeline. Then on your chart comes the cross. And then the ascension of Christ, which happens in Acts chapter 1. And I think at this point, so far, most students of the Bible go, okay, I'm with you. But here's where we start getting into the nuts and bolts of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The word eschatos in the Greek means the last or end times. So eschatology is the study of last things, the study of the end times. It's a picture of the future that the Bible lays out. And you'll see on your chart now that Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit is given in Acts 2, and then you have this gap that's called the church age. And if you look back at Daniel, it talks about 69 weeks of years. Daniel also speaks of a 70th week. And now we're still waiting for this 70th week because there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, and that's called the church age. And so we're still waiting for this final seven-year period where God focuses on Israel, and that's Jesus' content here in Matthew chapter 24. And you'll see on your chart at the end of the church age is something called the rapture or the rapture of the church. You've probably read about this or seen movies about this. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, but you've probably seen uh, some things about this. This is where the believers are going to be removed. And when the church or the believers are taken, it begins a seven-year period called the tribulation period. And that seven-year period of time is the 70th week of Daniel. It's covered, by the way, from Revelation chapter 4. If you read all the way to Revelation 19, that's the 70th week that Daniel speaks of. Then on your chart, at the end of the seven-year period, comes Revelation 19, when Jesus Christ returns. He sets up his throne for a thousand years in Jerusalem. How do we know it's a thousand years? Because the Bible in Revelation chapter 20 says it's a thousand years. That, that, that's what it says. And so when you read your Bible literally and it says a thousand years, it means a thousand years. And so Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we see the fulfillment of this promise that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And it's the establishment of this thousand year kingdom. And it's going to fulfill land, seed, and blessing. And it's going to fulfill it completely. And then according to Revelation 21, we'll have a new heaven and a new earth that lasts all the way to eternity future. And so the question is, is this chart exhaustive? No, it's a snapshot. Could you email me and say, Kevin, you've got issues? Sure. Probably has nothing to do with this chart even. You know, <laughs> you could say that. that's not what it's meant to. It's meant to be a tool. It's a snapshot of what was of what is and what is to come in order to help us bring the future into a little bit more focus. Does that make sense so far? Oh gosh, if that didn't make sense, we're in real trouble because it gets worse. Um, so the question we have is today, in 2023, 
what's the next event we are waiting for? Well, that would be the rapture. So I touched on it a little bit earlier, but let's look a, a little deeper at this because, you know, it's up next. <laughs> so we should maybe understand a little more about it. And this is spoken about in 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll put it up on the screen. And of course, there are debates about when this happens or when this is going to occur. But listen to this through our hermeneutic of literally, grammatically, historically, and Christocentrically. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. That sounds loud to me. So I don't think we're all going to be over here going, What just happened? I think we're going to know. It seems to imply that it's going to be loud enough and uh, spectacular enough. But it says, with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, he says, in light of all this, encourage one another with these words. Encourage each other with these words. And the encouragement is, or the comfort I would suggest that Paul is writing about comes in that before God opens up wrath in that seven-year tribulation period, we are taken to be with him in the air, and it says something is removed. Meaning not us. Something else outside of us is removed. That something is talked about in 2 Thessalonians, and I'll put it on the screen, because it's called the restrainer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you about these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And you're like, who's the he? Who's standing in the gap? So if you think it's bad right now, if he wasn't in the gap, it would be nuts. So there is a he who's standing there doing something day in and day out. Now some people suggest that the he is the church. That the church is the one who is restraining evil. And in a roundabout way, that might be true, but I don't think that's the he. Other people say the he is us as believers, individually. That believers restrain evil because of our presence and the transformation of Christ in our lives. And I would say that's sort of true, maybe, but I don't think that's the he. Who is the he? The he is the Holy Spirit. Is he sealed in us as believers? Yes. Do we, sealed believers, make up the church? Yes. But the restrainer is not the church or individual believers. It's the Holy Spirit. And so that's what takes place as Christ descends and takes us to be with him. And when that happens, we as believers will experience what's called the judgment seat of Christ. So if you're a believer... We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And now, what some people think when you stand there, you're going to be scared. But remember, the judgment seat of Christ is not a place of condemnation. It's a place of commendation. You want to be standing there. That's a good, it's a good thing. Standing before the judgment of Christ, good thing. 
But there's going to be others who don't know Jesus standing in front of the great white throne. You're in the wrong line. If there's a line. I don't know if there's a line. But if there's a line, you're, you're in the wrong. You don't want to be in front of the great white throne. You want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because that's where commendation, because you are his. The robes of Christ have been on you. And so this is talked about in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, lots of different places. But one of the biggest questions I hear in all of this is something that many people who read their Bibles ask is, um, where's Jesus? Because the Bible has been saying he's going to return for a long time. Let's get with it. Like 2,000 years? Like, could we, like, get going? I mean, even Peter says, the end of all things is near. And you're like, really? Like, really? Because it doesn't feel all that near. Even Jesus says, uh, when, when, it, when his voice is spoken of in the book of Revelation, he talks about coming quickly. And you're like, quickly? Like, how is that possible? Jesus, where are you? And some have suggested that that brings our Bible into question. And I would say, here's our misunderstanding. When we think about events, we like to look at our chart like this. Because we like to know all the details of the gaps. Like this is what happens. Then so many years pass, and then this happens, and then I can count in so many years, and then this, and then this, and, and, and but that's not how we should see it. You know how, how you should see it? Hold it like this. Look at the timeline like this. When you know that the events happens, but you don't see the totality of the gaps. You know a gap is there. You just don't know how big that gap is. Because you know the cross happens. They don't. We do. And then, and then they know the ascension happens. And, and then you know there's a church age. And you know, the, you, know, then you know the rapture takes place. And the tribulation, the second coming, and so on. But you're looking at it like this. You're going, I wish someone would just give me the details. Yeah, join the club. Okay? We all want details. But you need to look at it this way instead of this way. Because we don't see the gaps. All of the prophetic events are stacked like this picture on the screen. That's, in a sense, a picture of what the Bible gives us in terms of what's to come. So the gaps aren't there. We know they exist. So when the writers of the New Testament are speaking like, dude, man, this could happen any day, that's true. And I'm going to stand here this morning and go, dude, this could happen like any day. And that's true because there's a gap there, but I don't know the length of that gap. I know it's there, but I don't know the totality of it. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 3. It says, but do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. It feels like it is sometimes, right? But he's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Just because I think it's slow doesn't mean it is slow. There's a different timetable out there, and I don't think he cares about my timetable. I think he's working on a different set of rules. So we have to be careful to not think we can comprehend all of the gaps. We know the timeline, we just can't see the totality of the gaps. And so with all of that in mind, 
Look at Matthew chapter 23. 23, verse 39, the very last verse there. This is what it says. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what we saw is in uh, chapter 21, Jesus rolled into the temple mount. And then at the end of 23, right here, Jesus walks out of the temple mount. And as Jesus walks off the temple, he drops a hint about what is to come. Now, I'm sure these disciples are confused. You've got to remember, they don't know anything about cross, ascension, raptures, church age. They don't know any of that stuff yet. They're like, uh, they're doing good to comprehend what's happening right here. Because all throughout Jesus' teaching, they were looking at the coming of the kingdom the way we look at the timeline of the end times. They looked at it horizontally. They thought, well, the kingdom's going to appear immediately. Jesus is going to roll in, establish it right now. And so when Jesus dies, and really even after his resurrection, the disciples couldn't quite get the binoculars tuned in to see what is to come. And so right here, Jesus now is going to help them understand some things before he dies. Look at Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away. When his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So they're leaving the temple mount. As they're walking out, the disciples are like, wow, look at this place. Look at that temple. Remember, the Temple Mount is 35 acres. That's 11,000 parking spaces. 35 acres, 20 soccer fields. 35 acres, if you start on one side of the temple and you walk all the way to the other side of the temple, it will take you 25 minutes if there's no traffic. There's no other way. It's a big, monstrous, magnificent, beautiful place. It's a huge place. In fact, it was so big, one of the stones in the temple was 40 feet wide. Think the width of this room. 12 feet high, 14 feet deep, weighed 600 tons. It's an impressive place. And yet Jesus says, yeah, you see all this stuff? Torn down. Flattened. And so you can imagine as they're walking out, they're like, are you okay? You know, like, is that even possible? Like, what do you mean? How could that even happen? Are you sure? Before you say that, we like write stuff down. You want to take that back? Well, if you know your history, sure as rain, here comes a Jewish revolt in AD 70 as the Roman Emperor Nero dies and the general Vespasian heads back to Rome because he's going to be the new emperor of Rome, and he promptly sends his son Titus back to Jerusalem to sort of squash the revolt that's happening there. And when he arrives, he flattens the place. He rips the place apart, burns it to the ground, takes every stone off its place. And if you've ever been to Rome, the arch of Titus, the guy who did this, 
contains carvings and images of the Romans bringing back all the spoils of war from the destruction of this magnificent temple that the disciples were pointing to. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but the Colosseum in Rome was built by slave labor and the funding from the destruction of that very temple. History plays a big part of our Bible. And so back in Matthew... The disciples eventually make it to a place where they can sort of sit down and talk. That's verse 3. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That has to imply that their heads were spinning. They're walking out. He, they look back and say, look how awesome it is. And he's like, that place is going to be ripped to shreds. And their brain has to be going, what? And so they're walking along. They're trying to get their heads around this concept. When they sit down, they finally approach him and ask him some questions about this. Hey, when's all this going to happen? When will the fullness of your kingdom arrive? We want a timeline. Print us a chart like Kevin did. That's what they're asking. But remember, see, they didn't understand that all this stuff was stacked. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the church age, the rapture, and so on. So Jesus begins to explain to them what's going to take place, starting in verse 4 all the way through verse 8. It says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. You're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of the birth pains. So does any of that sound familiar? Anybody ever walked on and said, hey, false messiah, you ever walked around and said, wow, there's wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and global pandemics. And we look at this, and have you ever looked around and thought, we're in the last days. But just so you know, according to Jesus, we are not in the last days. We're still in the church age, but the birth pangs have begun. The contractions have begun. The sign of its coming arrival is now here. So according to the book of Revelation, after the rapture, you have the tribulation. And that means you've got things that are called the seal judgments. You have things called the trumpet judgments. And you have things called the bowl judgments. And so much like a woman's labor pains, they start slow and they get more and more frequent and more and more intense. So I've never had a child for obvious reasons, but when my wife was pregnant, when that first contraction hit, she was like, whoa, what was that? By the time she hit the last contraction, she was like, what? You know, right? That's kind of where you're sitting because it gets more and more intense and more and more frequent. The same thing's going to happen here. And so what he's saying is, All of these things in verse 4 through 8 are just the beginning of the contractions, and it's not the tribulation yet. The 70th week hasn't quite begun yet. It's it's all kind of coming to a head, and it's leading up to something. 
And to make sure we're on the same page, when the end begins, the seal judgments are the first things we're going to see. And you can read about the seal judgments in more detail in Revelation 6. And these seal judgments get rolled out over three and a half years. And Jesus is speaking about them here when that rolls out. And so the first seal judgment, now what happens here is the Antichrist will make an appearance. He will have incredible authority. And he will bring peace to the entire world. Complete peace to the whole world. Not sort of peace. Total peace. Entire world. Seven years. Second seal is that war breaks out worldwide and that former peace is now broken. And then worldwide famine. That's the third seal. The fourth seal is we're going to see the death of 25% of humanity. Two to three billion people are going to die like that. Fifth seal, it cuts into heaven and the martyrs in heaven cry out because of the judgment that's being poured out on the earth. The sixth seal, natural disasters and astrological changes. You're going to see the heavens and the stars, not like like the moon, like the moon or the sun or the stars are going to start changing in incredible ways. The seventh seal is the one that leads to the next seven judgments called the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments. All of this is ridiculously intense and grows more intense as they roll along. Jesus in Matthew 24 tells us what comes before the birth. Revelation is telling us the things that happens at the tribulation. And just so you know, we'll be looking at this stuff for the next several weeks. (laughs) Hey, hey, this is fun stuff. But finally, Jesus speaks about the people during the tribulation period. Lots of people want to know about them. That's verse 9. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. And that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so who are the people God is using during this time to bring people to himself? Well, according to Revelation 7, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish believers who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and for la- forgive me in this example, but they're going to function sort of like the, the Billy Grahams of the day. There's going to be a lot of them, and the name of Jesus is going to be preached to every tribe, nation, tongue, and ethnicity. And while that sounds great, it's a terribly, terribly, terribly difficult and intense time. And so the question I want to ask as we bring this to a close this week is, Why does Jesus bring up this idea of the end times with his disciples? Because, like, they don't know anything yet. Why does Jesus have a private Bible study with the disciples and adjust the focus of their binoculars so they can see what's about to come? Why would he do that? Because these guys needed hope. They just didn't know they needed hope. Because these guys needed to understand that things are going to get difficult. Really, really difficult. Because Jesus has plainly said, listen, if they've hated you, they're going you know, to hate me. 
And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. We're all hated. They hate me, they're going to hate you. And if they thought the temple arguments in the last several weeks, woe to you Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you blind guides, if you thought that was intense, he's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's not intense, that's child's play. Jesus is like, I've got some heavy lifting still to do. I'm going to go to the cross. But don't worry. And I'm going to ascend to the Father. But don't worry. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So don't worry. And you, as the church now, are going to proclaim the glories of a risen Christ until I come back to get you. So, so don't worry. When I come to get you, you're going to be with me in the air, and that'll begin a seven-year time of tribulation. So don't worry. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation, I'm going to return. Don't worry. And when I return in Revelation 19, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, when I return, I will bring justice like a river for all, and I will establish my throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and I will rule, and I will reign. So, so don't worry. But human nature and its fallenness are still going to rebel against Jesus, even with him on the throne for a thousand years. He goes, but don't worry. And so Jesus eventually will bring in what's called the new heaven and the new earth, which is why the Apostle Paul says, look, comfort one another, encourage one another with these words. Don't worry, we know the end. Why are you such a worry-filled people? We know how this whole story goes and how it comes to a conclusion. I don't know the totality of the gaps. But he's like, hopefully this is bringing it more into focus for you. Several years ago, Franklin Covey, I don't know if you know who that is, he's a leadership guru and a strategy expert, used the phrase, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. As believers, I think Jesus is trying to flip that around. Church, he's saying, y'all need to live with the end in mind. You need to live with the end in mind. Because if we know the end, can we like, live like we know the end? And so I want, I want to show you, I'll put on the screen the words uh, that, that's found in Titus chapter 2. Because I think it summarizes for us both what the gospel has done... And how the gospel shapes the hope of what is to come. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. I like that. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to, be rede who, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. These are the things you should teach. I love this idea that we are supposed to be living, looking for the blessed hope. Because listen, you can take this chart home and you can get lost in it. 
And you can start making all sorts of notes, crossing out where I blew it and putting in your own stuff and adding things and all. And you can get your binoculars and you can really look at this close and you know what you'll do? You'll miss the whole point. The point is simply this. We can comfort one another with these words because Jesus Christ is not done. That's the point. The point is Jesus Christ is not done. If you're discouraged by what you see in our world today, if you're discouraged by what you're hearing on the news or what you're seeing on the news, if you're discouraged by all the lack of injustice, like all the, all the people that's going, that is terrible, terrible stuff. If you're frustrated with sickness and disease that seems to be running rampant through our world, if you're frustrated that the sinful nature comes out and there's nothing but wars and rumors of wars and famines, church, it's all just birth pains. It hasn't even started yet. And so be encouraged, though, because through it all, we have a Savior who we know, not think, who we know will return. A Savior who's coming back to get us before it all starts getting started. And so let's look to the blessed hope, the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is coming back for me, and Jesus Christ is coming back for you, so let's live like that's true. And if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to figure that out right now, like today. So my daughter hates when I clap at her, but I'm like, you need to figure this out. Right? Get your life together. Because that's what he's saying. You need to figure this out. Because the end is coming, and the end is coming quickly. It's going to come unannounced, and it could come at any minute. And if you're not someone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ, friend, when we're taken, you are not. You're not. And man, there's no comfort in that. Because as we're going to talk about next week, when we uncover what happens in the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments, if you thought the seal judgments were bad, you're just wait and see what's coming because things get more and more severe and more and more intense. And so, friend, blessed is he who has tasted in the Lord and trusted him for salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen.